Today's date is August the 25th, 2019. You guys filled with zeal this morning? Amen. So in our sermon today, I want to give you an idea of where we are heading. We are unequivocally, unreserved, and unashamedly aiming at revival today. That we have amazing services. We have amazing time frames inside of our church. We are aiming for a special kind of revival. See, I was here in LCM in a few seasons when we had a revival in the most spirit-filled church that I had ever seen. And 25 people got saved in a single week and got filled with the Holy Ghost. When we had meetings that went on and on, not because we were droning on and on, but because the presence of God was weighing on us so heavily. Those things sparked things like the One Association, Elium in the Nations. That revival inside of our soul birthed a new vision. We believe that God is bringing us into that same kind of event today, on Wednesday, and in the days following this event, we want to cultivate something. See, Wednesday was a spark. It was meant to light something inside of us that turns an engine over. It was an amazing service, but we are not going to let it die there, are we? In addition to that, we want to tell you up front, I'm going to make no apologies for the time frame today. We are going to go for gold. We are going until we receive what the Holy Spirit wants us to receive. Are you with me? Can you do that with me? Our sermon is going to include law, prophets, and writings, older and newer. We will refer to many scriptures and throw many on the screen. We have something we are trying to accomplish today, and we are aiming for a revival inside of our hearts. And we will reference content that you have the freedom to study on your own time, any place that you would like. So I'm not going to tell you to settle down, be sedate, be satiated, or sit on your salvation today. What am I looking for after Wednesday? Can I hear some zeal? All right, let's get into the word. Go to Psalm 119. 137 is where we're going to pick up. Pastor's there. Are you following him? Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. This man is worn out by the zeal that he has. It was a struggle that was happening inside of him. And yet, after saying that he's worn out, he says, your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. See, through that testing, that zeal, and those promises were proved true. They were proved purified like gold. They were proved precious. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. It's an amazing thing how a man who is rich in faith can be lowly and despised on this earth. And often, what the world looks at as success has nothing to do with the kingdom. It's important to remember that when we're thinking about men of God or our own lives. I want to talk to you about our title, Barons of the Earth. Can we get that first slide? This is a baron, a baron in the classical sense of the word, a member of the lowest order of British nobility, a nobleman on the continent of Europe, a varying rank, typically the bottom of the totem pole, a member of the lowest order of the nobility in Japan, whether we're speaking about 
out of Britain, other countries in Europe, or in the Far East, baron has a very specific connotation. It means that you are noble, but not that noble. Like you're above the peasants, but you're nowhere near the status of a king or queen. You're down on the line. This is a baron that is descendant from effeminate aristocrats. Can you see what we're talking about? Give me the next slide. This is a very different type of baron. This is the American sense of the term. In the West, the term baron took on a radically different usage. The term baron, as it moves towards us, was adapted to describe a person who gains great power or mastery in his field of activity, someone who becomes dominant in their profession, i.e., a cattle baron, a railroad baron, or an oil baron. What it had to do with is somebody who was not born of nobility, but somebody who had worked in their trade and their craft to the point where they were unequivocally dominant in what they were called to do. Today, we're going to talk about many different callings, and yet one thing that we are aiming at. Many of us in the room are called to foreign nations. Many of us are called to raise households here. Many of us work in a daily job or work in a business that we will probably spend our life in, and yet all of us are called to a certain kind of royalty. And it is not the effeminate type. It's not the European type. It's this kind of baron that we're going to be preaching about today. The one who has calluses on his hands. The one who has worked and wasn't given anything special, but gained a mastery that was developed by the Holy Ghost, by hard work and discipline, and because of it became dominant in their field. Is that what you want today? I have one more slide for you, and then we're going to get after this. This is the Red Baron. Before I tell you a little bit about him, I want to tell you I am not endorsing the man's character. I'm not endorsing anything about him. All that I will say is that he's notable. Manfred von Richthof, somebody's going to have to help me with that, also known as the Red Baron. See, I can remember that. The Red Baron was a fighter pilot with German air forces during World War I. He is considered the ace of aces of the war, being officially credited with 80 air combat victories. To be officially credited means that it is verified. Not every time it was possible. Not, when you're not sure whether or not you succeeded, it doesn't get counted for. This is 80 confirmed combat victories. Famed for his crimson-painted airplane, which was nicknamed the Red Baron, it inspired both terror and admiration in his allied adversaries. He also became a potent propaganda symbol in Germany, where he was worshipped as a national hero. The general once remarked that Richthofen was worth as much as up to three divisions. Each division has several sets of planes that fly in unison. And he's saying, I would rather this one man than three divisions. That had to do with the fame that was developed around him and the fear that he struck inside of allied nations like ours. Coming from an unknown family, he became the most dominant fighter pilot that the world had ever seen. This man has no notable royalty that is what his title is derived from. People have speculated after the fact. They've wondered how could this common guy be so dominant. Something of his discipline and adherence to his craft, to his trade, earned him the name Red Baron 
And it's because he dominated his field in a way that none of us could touch. In fact, we celebrated and partied here in the United States when he was finally shot down. He also had a few nicknames like the Red Devil. With that in mind, we are not heading for military conquest this morning. We are not looking to raise a German flag or fly a red plane. We are looking for the unashamed, barren-like, dominant mastery of our trade. You want to get into the word? Somebody turn to John, the first chapter, verse 10. Say barren when you get there. Which kind of barren are you going to be? Amen. Everybody there? He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. See, right here we have an example of a difference between two different types of barren. We have one that the world recognizes and says, oh, that must be a king. And we have one that became dominant in his field, but he says the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human's decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God or born above. See here, this represents a few different things. You can be born into nobility, but just barely. The Son of God has laid down his life and given us the right to become noble, to become a baron. He started this race for us, and you immediately have the rights to sonship. Has he given rights to sonship in, in, in this room? Some, some of you received it. I'm looking at a few in the back that are curious about what sonship does look like. Do you know what sonship looks like, saints? Then let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 2. 1 through 5. Say there when you're there. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want to submit to you this morning that throughout the word we see an example of what it means to be a son of God. And that often it is slightly different than what we expected or what the church world presents it as. In this room, Paul says, or in this verse, Paul says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, we've heard this preached on several times over the last few weeks. How much of our lives do we know more than Christ? See, what we're looking for is a solidarity of mind, where there is one field that you are called to and you're becoming dominant in that one field. A baron of this, a baron of that, not a jack of all trades. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Man, it's hard to envision the Apostle Paul this way. But often those who are spiritual barons, those who are spiritually dominant in their life, look pretty barren, B-A-R-R-E-N, on this earth. He was clothed in weakness and fear, and yet he had something that was an all-surpassing power on the inside. Do you have an all-surpassing power on the inside this morning? And with much trembling, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but were with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Man, that's what it means to be born again. When you're born of above, when you're born of a heavenly father, when you're born of a substance that is more than just earthly, 
there is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You may be weak. You may look like you're trembling. You may not be strong on the outside, but there ought to be a demonstration of the Spirit's power that marks your life. In this room, we have the opportunity to demonstrate the Spirit's power through our lives. I want to tell you that Deuteronomy 26, 8 through 9, when the Israelites were called out of slavery, called out of death, God brought them out in a very distinct manner. He said, I brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. You see, the marker of somebody who is genuinely born again is not that their life just begins to improve. It's not that they just become a better person. It's that there is a miraculous testimony that surrounds you. See, we all too often speak about a son of God just too blanketly. What does it mean to be born into royalty? What does it mean to be initiated into a royal line? It means that something supernatural has happened in your life in a way that everybody should be able to see it. It shouldn't be a slow warming. It should be something that the earth is trembling from. You see this with Christians that radically get born again. Sometimes we let that cool off in a way we shouldn't. But a son of God is meant to be marked by a demonstration of the Spirit's power. If you were born of God, born from above, that should be making an impact that is noticeable for miles around. See, when you are born again, you are much like the first type of baron. You've inherited something that you have never worked for, that you did not do anything to deserve. You are nobility, but barely more than anything else. And in this room, we have the opportunity as we press into Christ, realize who we are, actually become men who walk like a baron, with a ring on your finger, like a man who knows what son he is. See, we all say that we are born of God, but not everyone acts like the Father. What we are after today is a revival inside of our soul that begins to make us act like the Father in every area of our life. That your prayer life, that your study, that your preaching, that your teaching, that your prayer time with your family, that when you're at the workplace, you are born of God in a way that is a demonstration to the Spirit's power. We ought not coast through life. We ought not be able to go through a week at work or a week at home with our friends and there not be a demonstration of the Spirit's power. If we are born of heaven, if we are born of something more, we should never be accepting something that is less than born of heaven. See, in this room, God is cultivating something here. He's trying to revive something inside of us. He says, there's a flame, but I want it to be raging. I know that you have zeal, but I want zeal that is all consuming on the inside of you. He's speaking to our body because he's preparing us for something. See, we got to see things like the one association that were a pipe dream at one point happening right now and coming about. But are we going to rest on only what God has spoken in the past? Or do you feel an obligation to hear from the Lord? See, I'm not just waiting for someone else to speak. I'm not just waiting for someone else to show us where to go. I believe that God is wanting to burn a fire in the area's families today that sets them ablaze, that men can see a demonstration of the Spirit's power from a distance, and that he adds revelation to their calling, that the things they already know God has called them to do with their function, that he might give some specificity, that he might anoint his children. I believe that he wants to do that in every family in this room. Are you going to settle for where you're at, or do you want that revival with me? <laughs> Romans 1.16, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, 
A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, in this room, we often speak about the gospel like it is uh, just in this book. And in this room, we are distinct from almost every other church that you will be in. And it's very easy for us to create a distinction between us and the world. But what was the prophecy that came forth tonight? We are not going to judge ourselves by the people that are just around us. We're going to look towards heaven and see what heaven is calling out of us today. In this room, I am unashamed of the power of God for salvation. I believe that in this room, it should show up in a dramatic demonstration. That the power of God in the gospel is not something that can stay sedentary. That it cannot be sedate. That it cannot be quiet. That it must be loud and it must be proclaimed because the word of God says it is unashamed. How do you feel when you think about the word? Do you just have pleasant thoughts? Or do you just have it as a rule that you live by? Or is there a fire that is growing in you that says, no, I love the word of God in a way that it is not just instructing me. It is power. It is power. It is power in my life. It is power in others' life. And I am not ashamed to proclaim it. See, how often do we just give wisdom but don't proclaim the word of God in a way that we believe it has power? I'm talking about life-changing power, earth-shaking power. It's not just a text. It is something that should be breathing inside of us and rolling through our minds because it is the power of salvation. Do you want to see people saved? Then we might need to breathe in a little more of the gospel in a way that is living and active. I want to talk to you about the book of Acts and the way that men walk this out. In Acts 4, 29, it says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. See, why would we need to pray and ask for great boldness? Perhaps it's because from the beginning they were needing a supernatural infilling to be able to stand unashamedly for the word of God. But apparently they believed it was worth doing too. They believed it was worth cultivating a revival fire inside of them. That despite the opposition, despite whatever else was going on, these are men who have walked with Jesus. But what is happening now, they're saying, oh, no, I need more. See, it's not that it wasn't amazing before. It's that God is calling us higher right now. Jesus, help us, fill us, help us to stand. Let us proclaim it boldly, Lord. I'm not okay with the good things that have happened. I'm in love with the good things that have happened, but I desperately am outclassed now. I realize what you're bringing me up against. If you're not regularly finding yourself outclassed in your Christian walk, you are not growing. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. What we are after today is like in Acts 4, that we might recognize our our opposition, recognize our own lack, and that we do not have what it takes because we are growing and doing this again and again, and that we might see the heavens shake. See, I believe that God will move on us in a way where we can feel his weight and he is working inside of each man, that the chaff might be stripped away before you're burned along with it, and that what you need to walk out your calling Over the next five to six years, you can receive in an instant when the fire of God falls and you are willing. In Acts 14, they talk that some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. This is verse 19, by the way. How many times did this happen? 
you're preaching, you in your own mind are listening to the word of God. And then there's some kind of rabble in every group, some kind of crowd in every group that is looking to win your heart over, to looking to win your soul over. It's much easier to see in other people's minds, but it happens to us as well. Paul is here preaching the word of God. And then someone comes from Antioch and Iconium to win the crowd over. Then what happens? They stoned the man of God and dragged him out the city thinking he was dead. My God. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. See, the power of God begins to be displayed when we are under threat, when we're under persecution. What it means to see a demonstration of the Spirit's power is there is something that needs miraculous power. In this room, it's time for us to cultivate an attitude that says, of course, it is difficult. Of course, Paul is moved by the Holy Spirit and then has somebody breaking in into his vehicle two days later. Why? Because we are at war. But when we have a resurrection power inside of our veins, it not only doesn't hinder us, it causes us to get back up and see more disciples raised, more than we saw before. What we need in this room is a demonstration of the Spirit's power that says, I am born of a new substance. I am born from above. I'm not just an average believer. I'm one who wants to take it seriously. I want what is in the Word. Devil, look at me. I'm not giving up. You can literally kill me, and my God will decide when I die. Why? You want to see a thousand generations raised up? Then we're going to have to win some disciples. And we cannot let a little thing like inconvenience or death get in the way. It's time that we have some resurrection power inside of us. They go on from Iconium in Acts 16, verse 37. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into a prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come and escort us out themselves. See, this is picking up in a story. They had a vision about a man that they needed to find in Macedonia. And they trusted God enough that they took a beating that he had a right not to take. He didn't announce his citizenship until after he took the beating. But taking that beating put him in a prison cell where there was a man that he did not know, but he had a vision of. And he ran into that man, and it transformed his life, his family, and began to transform his nation. See, in this room... I really want to know how willing we are to suffer. I know from some men in the room what great lengths they're willing to suffer. And I'm not speaking about how your peers view. I'm asking you personally. Are you willing not only to be stoned, but to be imprisoned, that you might see a single human being redeemed? See, it's very easy for us to answer quickly yes to that question. But how many of you have been imprisoned for the gospel? I know men that have been. How serious are we about seeing resurrection power in our daily, actual, real, not mythical lives? How much do you want to see it, church? How much do you want to see it in this room? Do you have some zeal for resurrection in your soul or are you asleep in here? If you don't want resurrection power, why do you believe in Christ? Why are you in this room if you don't think that it is real? See, in this room, that has become a fairy tale. You remember three years ago when somebody got resurrected. In your own life, how dedicated are you to being born of heaven, not of earthly things? 
It is time that we raise up a banner that is not accepting the things that we have in the past. It is time for us to take our stand as a body. And so I'm not just going to read about the word. I want to live it. I want to see those healings. I want to heal people and see the miraculous happening. It's not okay for it to be somebody else's testimony. I want fullness in Christ. Far too long we've been accepting the idea that we'll just be a baron who is barely royalty. It's time that we become dominant in our faith. In Acts 27, 29, Paul could not be made into a prisoner, no matter how hard they tried. It says that they were fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks. They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down in the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from below. In this passage, it goes on and it says that Paul warns them about the way to be saved from this disaster. Paul is chained up next to a Roman centurion whose job is to make sure he gets to Rome or he dies. One of the two. If he runs, he's got to die. If he leaves and escapes, the Roman centurion is held responsible for his life. And he's on a ship in a storm that is literally being torn apart to the place where the guys who own the boat, who their profession, their trade is to sail, are trying to get out of here. They're trying to flee. And then Paul begins to explain to them the right way to save their lives and then he encourages them eat something brother imagine we are standing in here and there's a storm and I'm standing next to Pastor Matt and Pastor Matt is a sailor the storm is raging Matt is the one who is chained up and then he leans over to me and is concerned about me eating Paul could not be made a prisoner he could not be held he could not be captive he could not be the man who was in despair Whether he was in chains or not, he knew that his God was holding him and he had a purpose. We cannot let ourselves be blown back and forth in the waves. Our position in Christ as a man who is born again is not dependent upon how our week went, how difficult things are in the meantime, or whether we are physically cuffed to somebody who is a guard. He could not be made a prisoner church. We cannot be made prisoners in the house of God. We cannot be sons of God who let ourselves be imprisoned by anything. Our circumstances don't matter. You are empowered by the Heavenly Father. Let's turn to Luke 20. And we're going to pick up in the ninth verse together. Somebody start to read that first verse for me. Twenty verse nine. Then went on shore to Caesarea Philippi, and John came to Jesus, leaving his boat and going out to water. It's great. Just for the recording, he went on to tell the people this parable: A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and he went away for a long time. I had Brother Linton read it because I want you to imagine that you're in the first century setting; that this is not something that you've heard a thousand times. That you're standing in a crowd, and people are gathered around Brother Linton over here, and you hear a parable starting to be read. As we read this, I want you to engage, like you're staring at a man in real life, when you're sitting around vineyards, real people, that this isn't just a story. Envision a servant, envision a son, envision grapes, and tell me what comes to your mind as you read. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants. So they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
Imagine that you have a job site somewhere, Brother Tom, and you send a servant to go pick up something that is supposed to be brought back to you. And your servant, your foreman, comes back beaten and bruised. What would that evoke in any man that cares for the people who work for him? That would provoke a zeal. That would provoke an anger. That would provoke a radical emotion. We wouldn't just read it and be rolling on till we hear the next thing that we say relates to Jesus. We would hear about the servant and feel the pain that the servant did because the man is standing in front of us. This man who built a vineyard sent his servant. This is someone that he cares about. To the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Not one, but two men. Imagine two men that you knew that were sent to do something that are beaten and sent back to you. We're just here to go collect what is owed to him. He built it. And these are men that are entrusted to him. He then says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owners of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. I want to submit to you today that this can be understood a little differently than you've traditionally heard it. The son without question is Jesus in this. But the servants that are sent by the master are still his servants. This story is not just about some mythical person. This is about the prophets. This is about men who came to his people and were beaten, sawed in two, and sent back. I want to ask you in this room, you may be a baron in that you were born into nobility. You are now included in Christ. But how much have you obtained dominance and mastery as a baron? Are you the son whom they said, that man, that man looks like the father. I can tell that the inheritance of the kingdom of God belongs to him. Are you a servant that they just know you have a loose association with him? Did they beat you or did they beat you shamefully? Did they beat you shamefully or did they want to kill you because they can see that you look just like the Christ? How much do we represent our father in this room? Have we been a servant who was included in the kingdom, but we have been content just to stay as somebody who's a baron that is barely in? Are you a barely barelin? Are you a man who is dominant in Christ? See, I know that's true for him, and I'm watching it. I don't know that it's true for many of you. And I believe that you are able to go from a servant to a servant who's more insistent about his master's will, all the way up to reflecting the sun and his glory. And what we are calling for today is a revival from wherever you have been, whether you have not been walking in Christ or you've had a strong relationship that God has set apart a time in our seasons that we have seen in years past that he is bringing and birthing something new, that we must walk like a man who has the inheritance and the authority of God, that it's time that we reflect the Christ and not stop halfway in between. See, those servants represent us as well as prophets in the past. They represent men that serve the living God. But how much do you serve him? How much do you represent him? Really, what I'm asking is how much do you love him? Because your love will reflect your obedience. It will reflect how you live out your life. And whether somebody else can see from a distance, that man is a son of God. 
I can see it by his actions. I can see it by his countenance. He's filled with an inexpressible joy. Can you work with lost people and they not know that you're radically born again unless they ask or see a coffee cup? See, I can see a mix of responses in the room to that very question. And I know for some of you that is absolutely not true, that they can see from a distance. But we love our church, and I love every one of you deeply. God is not going to allow for that to be a 50-50 answer anymore. He's bringing us to a winning fork that is a part of reaping a harvest where chaff is broken away. And I say, let's break the chaff off of our life. In the same way that we might remove a hand so the whole body doesn't go into the fire. In 1 Thessalonians 2, in the second verse, says, We have previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. And this should be the expectation that we have, that we are always opposed, that it is always difficult, and that our God will make a way each time. See, often our problem, the reason we don't walk like a son is that we are scared that we can't do it. I'm telling you that if you allow him to fill you with more of his love, that if we walk in his spirit, you will be able to do it. And you'll do it in a way that is honoring to your king. We must expect that we are preaching with strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. Nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who test our very hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. See, they understood that this was not about how they looked in the eyes of the world around them, that they were going to be tested on a very personal level by God. And that regardless of how anybody else felt about them, whether they loved them or hated them, that if they were not tested and approved again and again and measuring up to God who tested their hearts, they would be found guilty. And it doesn't matter who loves you, who's praying for you, who was there when you got born again at nine years old. God is going to test our hearts and it is revealed in our deeds how much we do or don't love him. Regardless of what we preach or what thing we say we stand for, the heart of a man reveals the truth time and time again. 1 Corinthians 3, in the 10th verse, says, By the grace of God that has been given to me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. See, he even phrases the foundation that he's laying as empowered by heaven, as grace that came from the throne room. And someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. See, I want to build in a way that we are pleased with, that the King of Kings is pleased with. And more than just knowing that he is pleased with it, and he will show us, we have to ask ourselves, if the attitude that we had in First Thessalonians was that we were preaching and opposed but God was making a way. And that was part of the demonstration of the Spirit's power, part of the testimony that you were born from something above. Can we really expect people to look at our lives and see Christ when it hasn't been tested by fire? 
Can we really expect somebody to take your word about Jesus the Christ when they don't see you dying in a sacrificial way? See, all too often we want to preach without showing genuine actions that back it up. And Corinthians 3 presents it as regardless of how pretty your work looked on the outside, if it wasn't laid on the overwhelming, unashamed, unabashed foundation of Christ that I am born into a new inheritance, it will be burned. So I don't want anyone in this room to be burned. I don't want your work to be burned. I want to see the generations these men are preaching about. First Peter 1 through 3, I'll read it to you. 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. See, our hope is not in this life. It never has been. That's why Paul could hope in the resurrection of the dead when he's being stoned to get back up and do what he's called to do. All too often, we let our hope be somewhere other than in the resurrection of the dead. When put on trial, Paul said, I am here because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. It's not in heaven. It's not in some far off place. It's when we come back to the earth that you lived on and how you lived on it will dictate how you return to it. Our hope must be in something other than the natural, something other in the flesh in a way that is visibly shown to the world. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. See, these are the marks of a genuine salvation. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, in this room, God has been kind enough to us to allow us to be proved genuine. But to be proved genuine is not a one-time USDA stamp on your forehead. It is a consistent, again and again, he brings you back around to another refining. See, there are brothers in this room that have loved the Lord for 30 years. And yet, where they were is nowhere near where they are now. And if they had stopped along the way, they would no longer be in the kingdom. And they can testify to that over decades. Elder Charlie got filled with the Holy Spirit before I was even born. And yet, again and again, his faith has deepened in a way that can be radically seen. I remember when he came to Texas. I remember hearing stories about what he was doing before. And that man has a life that is a progressive revelation. Are you proved genuine in this room, or are you still resting upon what you've done in the past while struggling in this moment? So what we need to do is turn and face the trial and say, yes, Jesus, I want this. Help me. Teach me. Let me do something with it. This is what the faith of God is supposed to look like, is resurrection power inside of weakness. Jesus, help us. Revive us. Lord, I need a revival, not just in the church service. I need it in my own soul right now. Lord, fill me with something that is new, that is higher, that is born from above. I want to tell you that 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9 says that your faith is of greater worth than gold. As it is proved genuine. This reminds me very much so of Romans 16, 10. Greet Apelles, who is tested and approved in Christ. 
Greet those who belong to the household. In this room, how many times are we proving ourselves tested? It is our joy to go a little higher each time. We're in a body that is always preaching, telling you to go further, further, further. I'm telling you that I've seen this before, that we're in one of those phases that right now, you have no idea what is going to happen and what we will look like in five or six years. And that a few moments inside of your soul where you decide just to brush it off lightly or let that Holy Spirit of God fill you in a new way can dictate how you walk those five years. We want to be tested and approved, and I believe God will help us pass the test. Titus 2.15 says that these things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. It's time that we walk in all authority if the word says it. No longer can we give it a, this is my opinion, this is this. If it's your opinion, then be quiet about it. If the word says it, teach it with all authority. Matthew 28, 18 says something very similar. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says, All authority in this room, inside of me, I have recognized the fact that I often don't actually walk that scripture out. And it must have something to do with me not believing that he's with me to the end of the age. How much of your day do you spend walking in all authority? Man, I hope it is more than it has been at times for me. But I'm done with walking in half the authority that God has called me to. When the Bible says all authority, do you believe it, Assad? I know that Assad believes it. I watch it working in his family. Do you believe it when it says all authority? Then it's time that we walk in it. And not let it just be an axiom that all authority is available to every man in this room for his household, for his children, in his workplace. For the believer or the sinner that is in front of you makes no difference. You ought to represent God with all authority. Let's represent him with the same kind of authority that Jesus Christ did. One that is wholly submitted to the Father in every way. And yet is the authority on any and every subject that the Father speaks about. See, in John 3, 18, there's a very common scripture. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God, the one and only Son. This is a beautiful truth, and it is also something that we get regularly accustomed to hearing. Romans 4, 18 says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Again, this is beautiful. Abraham fought for the hope and belief that he had. It was a great struggle that proved out to be righteousness. And we're pretty used to hearing it. Mark 5, 36 says, Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. In and of themselves, these are extraordinary passages that have implications that go far beyond what most people consider when they read them. And at the same time, they can become cute and trite. Turn with me to Mark 16, verse 15. Say believe when you get there. He said to them, verse 15, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. 
Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and they will drink deadly poisons, and it will not hurt them. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. I don't think this needs a lot of elaboration. Whoever believes, these signs will follow. But whoever does not believe, I will condemn. Regardless of what we profess with our mouth, God says that these signs will follow those who believe. If those signs are not following you, then we have to question whether or not you believe. I want to ask you, not just as a church body, not as LCM or Eric Stevens or Wade Sutherland or Matthew Pirro, have you seen those signs following you? Is the miraculous and a demonstration of the Spirit's power marking your belief? Not somebody else's, not a raised up pastor, not somebody that is your elected champion. Do those signs mark you, your family, your wife, your children? Is there a demonstration that your belief is real or not? See, I want to challenge every one of you in the room that somebody else's getting out of a wheelchair, somebody else's vision that is from God isn't going to do a damn thing for you. And he will damn you as a man who does not believe if you do not show signs that are following genuine conversion. See, we can't conjure these up. We are not a church of parlor tricks. We are not the type that are looking for feathers and gems on the floor. We are the type that are so unashamed of the gospel that we are happy to run into the Middle East. We're happy to run into Matamoros or run into anything that the King of Kings wishes for us in downtown Houston. And that you trust that you will see the miraculous when you're standing and speaking for him. So you don't have to go on a foreign mission field. You don't have to be a pastor to see the miraculous your own house. But you do have to see the signs of those who believe. If we are accepting something other than a demonstration of the Spirit's power that is visible to the world around us, where they say, Carlos over there, that man is a son of God because they can see it in him. And I'm using him as that example because it's true about his life. Then we have got something missing here. That we are missing something altogether. When it means to believe is that you see a demonstration of the Spirit's work and these signs will following. How is your belief, church? Where is it that you stand in the house of God when an elder is not next to you to make you feel better about? They prophesied. That doesn't mean that you heard from God. They spoke and stood in the gap. At some point, we are supposed to learn to respond and do the same thing. How is your belief? Is it real? Is it genuine? Do you believe like the Son of God believed? Do you believe like the apostles believed? Or is your belief just a cursory thing and you're fitting in the crowd? See, I know some of you have something that is rising up inside of you. Another... Others of you are just scared. Listen to me. The King of Kings came to heal you. He came to give this to you. It's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you that he gave you that gift. But we can't spit in his face and stay where we are at when he's called us to so much more than we've been living in. Your belief should produce visible signs or it is not genuine belief. Remember, our faith is proved genuine by the fire that we consistently go through. That when Peter was talking about this, it wasn't separated from the rest of the Gospels. That you must have faith that is proved genuine. Say proved genuine. genuine. So what are you going to do? You're going to look for your faith to be proved genuine. Say genuine with me. We're not going to accept anything that is less than the genuine article of a Christian. And we won't pretend you're a Christian if it's not genuine. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together? Everyone has a, a word, a hymn, 
something of instruction. I want to challenge you this morning. Some of you are in my family, by blood relation. Many of you I've known for years. Did you come this morning with a word that was born of God, with a hymn, with a word of instruction? When you came in, were you ready to contribute? See, I saw a zeal when you came in that was better than many, many mornings that we've had. And it encouraged me. It encouraged the pastors. Everyone has something to contribute in this room. All too often, we count ourselves out as worthless, that we have nothing to contribute, so you don't even try. Are you a son of God or not? If you believe, then the miraculous will happen with you. If you believe, then the word of God is the power of salvation. If you believe, resurrection is inside of your soul. Doesn't matter where you came from or what you're doing, you have something to contribute inside of this service, inside of our lives, inside of our homes. Every man, every woman, you have something to give. So when you see each other next and you're having a casual dinner, how about you pray and expect that the Holy Ghost is going to show up and move in a way that transforms your lives. Maybe we should stop waiting for the next service. And when we're fellowshipping, when we're at work, when we're hanging out with each other, why don't you look for the miraculous to break out? Everyone. When you come together, what are you going to do when you come together? You're going to have something. John 14, 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. If Jesus the Christ says, I tell you the truth, can you believe it? Can you believe it? Then everything that comes after this must be an absolute truth, correct? Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So we already agreed that this is absolutely unequivocally true. And I want to ask you, saints, how much of what you ask is immediately done in the Father? is greater than the life of Jesus. See, there's this giant misnomer. There are people in this world that read that and think that whatever their desire is, God is going to birth. Then there are others that know that's not quite true, but you also are hesitant to conform your life to Christ so much that your desires become like Him. You still want to hold on to part of your own life, part of your own desires, part of your own ambitions in Him at the same time. For us to be able to say this, We have to be asking for what the Father is. And the expectation that a real Christian has is that it's going to be even greater than what we saw in the life of Jesus. Why is it that we've begun to just take that as a relegated scripture that, yes, that's cool, but no, I don't actually believe it? I'm, I'm speaking genuinely out of my own heart and yours. When you read that, does something leap inside of you normally on an average day and say, oh, yeah, man, it's going to be better than the life of Christ today? But that is what his desire for his disciples was when he left. For us, for you who believe, you who are born from above, that your life might be greater than his. How can we take our father's desire and throw it away so carelessly? We should expect that we see greater than we did in the life of Jesus because it is growing in revelation, growing in power and spreading out on the earth. We might have to engage with the enemy and conform our emotions to him. Philippians 1.27 says that whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. 
See, as we contend as one man for the faith of the gospel, we are unified around Christ and we each become more like Christ together. But that requires contention, not passivity. It's not okay for us to just be fighting our own battle, our own war, and meeting together on occasion. It's time that we contend for the gospel to the extent where you realize how desperately you need each other. That it's not okay for one of us to be going astray. You need everyone. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. What is the sign? Let's read that one more time. That you're standing firm, contending as one man for the faith in the gospel without being frightened in any way. You want to set out a sign to the world that says life and death is at your end? That it's right here at your disposal and a verdict will be issued? You unify with the people around you. You stand for the faith of the gospel and do not be frightened in any way. When you hear that God is calling you higher, you must bend your heart to the will of God, not where it wants to go. John 10.10 says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Whatever that other desire is, that chaff that has been in your life, for some of you, it has to do with your occupation. For some of you, it has to do with entertainment. With others, it has to do with just fear to stand up and do what's right in your own home. The enemy is here to steal, kill, and destroy your life, your family, and your children. Those ancillary things that feel like they're harmless or you're just going to have to mitigate them because you know they're not good, they are stealing, killing, and destroying. The enemy does not do anything else. He doesn't aid you. He doesn't just stand off to the side. If it is something that God is trying to strip out of your life, we can't play nice with it anymore. It does nothing but steal, kill, and destroy. There is nothing about it that is acceptable, tolerable. You're a son of God. It's time to get rid of this. What did he come for? He came so that we might have life abundantly. I want to tell you tonight, sir, church, today, church, that we've had life inside of Christ. But I don't think we've really had it abundantly in the way that he is calling us to today. That we've seen miraculous things in this room. We've seen children raised that are going to shake the nations. But it's time that we actually have the full abundance that he's called us to. If it says those who believe these signs will mark and it's not marking you, how do we say that you actually believe? Maybe we need to step up our belief in him where it actually changes our actions. And when we speak about the Holy Spirit... It is not just praying in tongues. It's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It's you coming with something to contribute. We cannot say that you're filled. Maybe you have some, but not filled with the Spirit if that word is not true about you. In this room, I want every man, every woman, every child to have an abundant life that is filled with power from God. Amen. Let's be honest. It's not worth living if you're going to stay lukewarm. The way that this finishes, it would be better just to end it right now. And in this room, if you're willing to end your sinful life right now, die and be resurrected, you can have a whole new beginning. Have a whole new resurrection. Regardless of when Christ originally spoke to you, if right now that belief is not true about you, it needs to change. Why would we go one more day, one more hour, when you don't even look like those who believe? How about we decide that we are going to stand for what the gospel actually preaches? that we will take a dominance and a mastery over what we are called to do.
I want to tell you in Genesis 1, actually, you're going to turn there. Let's go to Genesis 1, 27. This is worth reading. So God created man in his own image. So the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, I had a friend and a disciple bring this up to me in a way that uh, made me look at it differently than I ever have. How many of you are familiar with this? We should be seeing most hands in the room. It says subdue and multiply. We've studied these words. We've heard about what it means to kibosh, to subdue, all of those things a hundred times. And if we're not careful, we get dull to it. That passage, that was given before the fall of man. What does that mean? Was it in response to the fact that we were dying so that your family name wouldn't die out? Was it given just so that the word of God would continue? It was given when they lived without limit, when there was no expiration date on man. The original mandate that God gave from heaven was prior to death having ever entered the earth. Maybe that means that before sin, death, anything else, he always wanted you to subdue the earth, be dominant over the earth. Too much of our lives, saints, we are looking at these things as an answer to a problem. You read a scripture and you're moved by it because of the sin in your life. How about we be moved by the scripture because we want to see it in our life and it's not a response to sin. In this room, we are responding to fear all too often when we should be motivated by faith. This word was given to man before they ever were set on a path of destruction. They were given because you were made to dominate. You were made to be masterful. You were made to hone in the craft that God gave you. And it's not a response to how you messed it up. It's a response to your very creation and existence on the earth. All too, in the word, we see this happen all too often in men's lives. In Joshua, men who were stationed just beneath the Jordan, they wanted to build an altar. And they said they were going to build it so that we will not. Then add anything else that you would like behind it. Not be forgotten, not be left off to the side to go our own way into idolatry. Saul made sacrifices, and when he gives an explanation to Samuel, he says, I did that so that the men would not leave me, so that I would not. How much of your decision-making is based in fear as opposed to faith? When we talk about all authority, we talk about belief, we talk about faith. Faith should be a motivation that comes from the Son of God, not a response to the wrong that you did. There's a huge difference between those two things. One is reactionary. One is the gates of hell are beating you over the head. The other is you're advancing the kingdom of God. I want to ask some questions in this room, specifically to single people in the room. Are you considering what may work so that you will not be alone, not be forgotten, so that you will not miss out on a family, as opposed to what was born of heaven and is clearly testified to, and God said this is it and it's unequivocal? Are you trying to fill a lack or a gap that you have? Do you feel like so much time has gone by that you need something to happen now, so you're choosing to settle for less Parents in this room, are you considering sending your kids to college or considering encouraging them to, towards someone 
towards a direction, whether it's secular or marriage or anything else, that you have not actually heard from God about, but you're just doing that because you're scared that they will not have what they need. All too often in this world, we live like Saul. Put 1 Samuel 8, 19 on the screen. We're going to read it together. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all about that, the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone, go back to your own town. See, in this passage, Samuel is going back to the Lord, seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord, because he knows what they're begging for is not actually the will of God. Answer me this in the room. You've gone through 1 Samuel. Was it wrong to want a king? Was it a righteous desire to be married? Was it a righteous desire to have this career? Was it a righteous desire to have so many things? But demanding what you want when God has not spoken about it, when he has not said this is it, demanding I want this now because it's on your own timeline, that will produce death that Samuel is grieved over. That will produce idols in a land that is separated and divided. See, Israel didn't stay together. We only get to Rehoboam, and then Israel is broken into pieces. So we have Joshua where they're saying, we don't want to be separated. We don't want to be divided. So we're going to build this altar thing that we're not using for sacrifices. And by the time that we get to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, we have idols and altars to the Lord all over Israel. When your own heart is divided and you're willing to justify with your mind what your heart wants, we begin to see things that are miraculous in a way that we never intended. It's miraculous how somebody's life can go down the drain because they've decided to marry somebody that they wanted to marry. It's miraculous how somebody's life can go down the drain because they just wanted what they wanted. We might have to strip our hearts in this room and wonder why certain things haven't been showing up in our life. Perhaps it's something that we want, that we are fighting for, that is choosing what kills, steals, and destroys versus the abundant life. If we're really honest, how can we sit in this room and say, I don't need to change something if our life doesn't look like the believers that we just read about? See, the prophets had such amazing courage and difficulties at times. They were much like us where they had to circumcise their hearts and they stood and faced their enemies. Elijah was a baron that was dominant and masterful. In 1 Kings 18, 25, it says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call in the name of your God. See, they were always outnumbered. But do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. And no one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, shout louder. This goes on where they begin to cut themselves. He chastised them. And in Hebrew, it sounds very much so like he was accusing him, their God, of being on the toilet. He is a supreme confidence because he is dominant in his faith. His faith is not in question. It's not in question to the point where he can be surrounded by 400 prophets of another religion and have no problem standing to speak. He can do that because he has consistently sacrificed in his life to become who he is. A man who has nothing but the kingdom of God. 
Name some possessions that Elijah had. You might be able to name a robe. You might be able to name a stick that he walked around on. If we really want to call it something fancy, let's call it a staff, but it's a stick. He was barren on this earth and had nothing to his name that would be worth any amount of money. But he was a barren in the spiritual realm. How much of your life looks like the barons of this world versus the barons of the Bible? Because the truth is you can't have both. We can't have all the worldly possessions that we want and have the spiritual tenacity that we need. In this room, we must be dominant in the way Elijah was, where no matter what the cost is, what the sacrifice is, I am going to see my God proved holy. My God proved glorious. I will see it in the face of my enemy, in the face of opposition, like 1 Thessalonians preaches about. In this room, we are going to fight, but we're going to fight like men that know our God in his character and really don't care for anything else. Are you a baron on this earth that is barely noble in the kingdom of heaven? Are you a baron in the heavens that God knows your name and barren and destitute in this worldly setting? There's another man in the story. A few chapters later, Ahab. Ahab is a very special guy. He's probably made it into more sermons than almost anybody else in this section of Kings. 1 Kings 21, 25. There was a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by his wife, Jezebel. It's not that Ahab didn't have an experience with God or that he wasn't moved by the Lord or even had a kind of born-again experience. It's that he sold himself to do evil, to get what he wanted. And his household was never in shalom. In fact, he was getting so much worse that at some points she encourages him towards murder, and he does it. She encourages him towards this, and he does it. He had reached a place in his life in a contrast between him and Elijah. He's somebody who knows of the kingdom. He's barely noble. In fact, he's in the position that he is because he's a descendant of a descendant of, not because his character was kingly. And Elijah is running around with nothing but the clothes on his back, offerings given that feed him that day, while he is sitting in a palace. But ask yourself, which one is actually a baron? The one who is dominant and knows who they are. The one who is masterful in their trade. They may have no pennies to their name. But you can see that man from a distance and say he's got a signet ring. That guy has inheritance. He is a son of God. There are some dogs in this story too. 1840 says, Then Elijah commanded them, Seed the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. Seize them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. See, they were destined for destruction and nothing else. Because all they cared about was what they got inside of this world. It's time that we take hold of our royal descent. We're not happy to barely be considered royalty, but we must be dominant in our craft. If we settle for barely being a baron, we will finish barren and destitute. If we finish as somebody who is barely in nobility, you will have nothing in the kingdom to come. You will be those who said that you believed, but were condemned because nothing about your life showed it. See, there are a few different types of being barren here. Those dogs were barren, like B-A-R-R-E-N, that there was nothing good there, nothing growing there. There are very few people like that in this room. But some of you are barons that you have a gift that is based on nobility. But it's time that we actually live like Christ, that we actually live with a signet ring on our hands. 
2 Peter 1.19. And we have the words of the prophets made more certain. Somebody say more certain. What does more certain mean? More certain than who? More certain than everybody who has come before you, than the prophets who stood and called down fire from the heavens. Peter says that for you, sitting in your chair right now, holding a Bible that was printed and mass-produced, given to you, didn't even have to be written by hand, that your promise is more certain right now than it was for all of the men of faith in the past. What kind of obligation do we have to that? Can we really be holding a Bible in our hands? Hear the word of God that says that it is more certain for us than it was for them, but not be living even like they were in the book of Acts or in the New Testament? Can we be more certain, have more at our disposal, but not even be living up to what they did? I find that wholly unacceptable. I find it ridiculous. I find it something that cannot be tolerated because it does not bring glory to my king. In fact, it shames him. Do you find it acceptable? Then we ought to do something to change it. We ought to do something that lights a fire inside of us that can change the way that we are. See, we may have come a distance up to this point, but I find our current state wholly unacceptable because God finds it unacceptable. He loves the men and women in this room enough that he is patient with us, encouraging us. And we are coming to a day that he's saying we must live like he's called us to. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Where is our origin? Is the Spirit of God leading you to the place that you could be considered a son that was adding testimony to the kingdom. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Where does your direction and your vision have its origin? Is it out of the word of God and a supernatural demonstration that means that you're born again? Or is it out of somebody else's love? See, I am a second generation Christian and I see sons and daughters sitting next to their parents in this room. Is your love for the Lord based out of a fiery, born-again, realizing I am a damned sinner if I don't repent. Or you have your origination out of somebody else's love and passion. In this room, it is time that we don't ride on anybody else's strength, that we take ownership for where we are called to be. 1 John 3, 8 says, He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's sin remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of heaven. Saints, what we want today more than anything else, we're an hour and 10 minutes in, is that we live and walk like the actual sons of God that we're called to be, and not just a few of us. There are some fiery Christians in here that are worth imitating, that are worth watching. But Jesus came with the intention of losing none. He came and entrusted you to us. You came here because you felt like you were called to be here. That God had ordained it. It's time that we live in the way that he has called us to. Not sitting in the body that we know we're supposed to be in, but giving a 10%, 30, 40, 50, anything other than a wholehearted effort. Revelation 21 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, they will not make it into the kingdom. Honestly, the scariest part about that is the word cowardly. 
not idolatry, it's not witchcraft, it's just simple cowardice. See, in one generation, something may be very prevalent. We all have different vices for much of the world around us. It's sports, it's other things just like that. But I think one of the most pressing concerns for men in this room is quiet cowardice in this room. That's really what eats your lunch. You're like, I know that I need to do something about this, and you have the courage to do it for a day or two, and then it starts to wane. Cowardice is eating some of your lunch, is destroying your family, and we can put it to death. See, we are called to represent a lion. We are called to represent a king that is the furthest thing from cowardice. He is the presence of glory. He is the presence of strength. He is all-powerful. Revelation 5, verse 3 says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept because no one was found. (laughs) Then it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah is triumphing. Why is he here, church? He's here to destroy the devil's work, not play nice with it, not play nice with it inside of you. You are supposed to represent the lion. We do represent the lion, whether or not you're living up to it. Let me ask you, are we staying in this cowardice-stricken, barely, barely state? Are we desperately holding on to the little that you have? Are you realizing that you're noble and just clinging to that and that's all you got? Or is something that is a voice of a lion coming out of you that says, I cannot stay as just barely noble. It's time that we live up to the voice of our king. In Exodus 30, I promise we're coming to a close, but there's something you're really going to want to hear. Exodus 30 speaks about the process for crossing the Jordan River. And a ransom had to be paid for your life. See, these Israelites had been baptized in the Red Sea. They had the blood of lamb on them. And yet they came up to a river, a Jordan. And they had to pay a ransom for their lives. And crossing the Jordan created a life or death bridge between those who were on one side of it and the other. Can I get that slide? This is the Jordan River. You guys in Exodus 30? The Jordan is often called the descender because it goes from north to south all the way across Israel. It splits and divides the people of God. 100 foot, mile wide, depending on whether we're at flood stage, almost always at flood stage when they had to cross it. Judgment in Numbers 14, awesome salvation in Joshua 3. John Leah Mercer was working in it. It's a notable figure throughout the Bible. But in Exodus 30, it presents it as the place where our redemption, our ransom is paid yet again. That regardless of where you have been brought out of, coming out of slavery, coming through the water of repentance, following him by fire at night in the desert, we're reaching a place in LCM in our own lives We're like Joshua 3. We've been camping on one side of the Jordan. He's been giving us time to consider it, to count the cost. He's been preaching about our households, from our relationship with our wives, how we are leading our home, down to our children. And he's working to tune our lives up because we are reaching a river that must be crossed. And the funny thing about this Jordan crossing is that men and women 
may have been perfectly saved in salvation, following the Lord, and if they chose to stay on the wrong side of the Jordan because they weren't willing to go the rest of the way, they stay in death and die. So what I'm saying very frankly in this room right now is that there is a Jordan River running through this body. That you may have progressed at some point. You may have been in love with Jesus. And if you are in love with Jesus, then you should be longing to see what's on the other side of the Jordan. That there is an inheritance for our body, for the one association, that is supernatural as the idea of the idea idea of a one association was to 60 people sitting in a little storefront. There's that kind of supernatural promise, encouragement, strengthening, filling, and repentance on the other side of the Jordan. But you're going to have to pass through death in life. And to not respond to it physically in this room, as well as spiritually, is basically saying, I would like to stay in death and on the other side of the Jordan. That you are saying, I am choosing not to go where God is going. And that I like it in the desert, or I like it where I'm at. But God doesn't give us that choice. He said, but Jesus paid the cost. Yes, and a ransom is still demanded of you again. The apostles had to push into what they were called to do. Men and women who believed that a Messiah was coming and loved the God of the Bible still had to grow in their understanding and cling to Jesus when he showed up. And if they didn't, it wasn't continued salvation. See, it is possible for you to go three quarters of a mile and fail in the last quarter. I know you. I love you. We don't have to do that, and I've seen it many, many times. So I'm asking you right now, with this Jordan River that is between us and where we are going, which of you cannot be denied? I'm not looking for the ones that can be pulled. Which of you cannot be denied from what God is calling you to? Is something in you saying, I find the way that I have lived wholly unacceptable. I want the kingdom's power inside of me. Are you still okay with a 50-50 kingdom? Can you be denied? If you can be denied, then separate yourself. Go ahead. Run with Demas. If you want the unashamed power of God, then take your stand for it. Keep the lights on. Mark 1, 14 says that the kingdom of God is upon us. It's not in the past. It's not in the future. We won't get to it over time. I believe that right now in the Zachary household that God will give a vision about the Middle East, that he'll speak about how to raise his sons and prepare them for Egypt, that God will speak inside of the Raida home and empower them for the callings that they have. I also believe that if somebody in here has been wondering what real Christianity is like, they can come and participate in it. We are going to be those who are unashamed of the gospel and are willing to stand for it because that is what our king is calling us to. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come a man, will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus, we thank you that you are such an amazing God, that you're able to take wretched souls like me 
and turn us into something that is pleasing to you. Lord, we stand before you today and we say that we want the real thing, that we will not be denied. We will not be satisfied with something other than what is you. Lord, we cry out to you. Lord, I say, I want to see every family in this room filled with power, filled with passion. Lord, and able to carry out what they were called to. Jesus, will you move inside of us? Lord, we put ourselves before you like men of old. We say we don't want anything other than your presence. We're not interested with any other concern. Lord, we are here because we want all of you. Will you call down fire upon us? Will you baptize us like you did in that upper room? Lord, will you stir us like you have in men of old? Jesus, we want to see greater things in our own lives, in our own time. Jesus, we don't want to wait anymore for a day that the kingdom has come. We want your kingdom here and now. Our children are here and now. Lord, let your kingdom fall upon them in a power in a way that we cannot ever be the same from. Let your revival begin to burn inside of our hearts. Lord, I want to take my stand for you and represent you well.